Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Thank you for joining me today for the finale of this most epic saga. As promised, this really is the last. It's a little bit later than I hoped for, but, you know. If this is your first episode, hello and welcome, but please pause here. Go back and listen to the rest of the series, Paris of the Plains. Um, That would be Prohibition and then Pendergast Parts 1, 2, 3, and 4. Previously on Homegrown KC. What appeared to be a routine case of greed and corruption among members of the Pendergast machine, the fire insurance scam, was actually the straw that broke the camel's back. And today on Homegrown KC, the end has come. Pendergast goes to prison and the machine is dismantled. So remember that $440,000 that TJ failed to pay his taxes on? Yeah, that comes back to bite him in the ass. (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but um, famous... Chicago mobster Al Capone, he visited KC a lot, um, and Pendergast visited Chicago a lot. They had a lot of um, business dealings together. Well, he was also arrested and then sent to prison for tax evasion in 1931, and I can't figure out how TJ didn't watch what went down with Capone and be like, hmm, let's not pay taxes. That seems like a great idea. Let's do that. We won't get caught like that numbskull. Um, well, you did, Tommy boy. So, pro tip to any wannabe criminals who are listening, pay your taxes. Always pay your taxes, you will get caught if you don't. Anyway, here's how this went down. In October 1935, Ernest Hicks, he was Filoni's business partner, so Filoni, remember, was one of the lawyers involved in the fire insurance scam. Hicks died, and the IRS began a routine inspection of his taxes. When they came across the line in one of the books that said, 100 thousand five hundred dollars to charles r street and so then the dominoes just start falling the irs agents are like what's this for one is like it belongs to street so they go to street and they're like what's this for and he's like yeah that's my money but then he won't tell them what the money was for so they keep interviewing him and his story changes a few times that sounds familiar um finally they get tired of the go-around and they issue a summons on march um in sorry in march in 1937 the next day, he sits down for the interview, and this time he has his lawyer with him, which hadn't happened before. But once again, he refuses to say anything specific on the grounds that he might incriminate himself. Okay, well, if you're telling me that you don't want to say anything because you're going to incriminate yourself, that tells me that you have something to say, right? But they were never able to complete their investigation against him, or at least they were never able to file charges against him, because Charlie visited the hospital in Chicago in 1938. Um... This is actually January 1938, so it's uh, just short of a year after the summons. And doctor's like, hey, you got cancer. And then he died a few days later on February 1st after an operation. Presumably this operation was to remove the cancer. Anyway, after his death, two new guys take over the case, L.B. Sullivan and P.J. McGrath. So maybe it's not just lawyers. Maybe it's just my source that likes to use initials instead of full names. I don't know. 
Um, but at this time, they still don't know what they're looking at. They have no idea the scope of this case. So Sullivan and McGrath really started digging into street, and what they find is that he had two accounts. Go figure. One was his personal account, and the other was an agency account titled the Charles R. Street Agency. And here is where you would have some kind of anticipatory background music, because, quote, the agents realized they had discovered a fund of $317,061.54, which, by the manner in which the entries were made, disclosed an attempt at concealment. Dun-dun-dun. Does this sound familiar to anyone, this, this amount? No, well, if I told you that he took out a loan on April 1st, 1936, bringing his account up to a total of $330,000, would that sound more familiar? Well, it should, because he gave Pendergast $330,000 on that same day. So let me also take a moment to correct myself. In the previous episode, I said that this transaction took place in February, but I misspoke. It was in April. All right. Enough of the investigation in the street. He keeps going for a long time. They find a lot more evidence. Let's fast forward to Tommy Boy because that's what we're interested in. The IRS opened a formal investigation into Boss Tom on May 9th, 1938. They interviewed just about everybody associated with Tom. McCormick, y'all remember him. He was a big player in the fire and shirt scandal, and he accepted bribe money alongside TJ and O'Malley. Well, Homeboy here caved and confessed everything to the investigation on March 17th in 1939. So, yeah, not good. This was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, and it just clinched the case for the investigators. A grand jury was convened on January 23rd, 1939. They're still conducting interviews and looking at documents at this time. Um, One of the people they interviewed was a man named E.L. Schneider. He was Tom's bookkeeper, and he served as a secretary and treasurer in several companies associated with TJ. So that's shady. Uh, They grilled him repeatedly, scoured his financial records and the records of these companies. Now, Schneider is kind of interesting. Well, really, his death is what interests me, but I don't have time to go into his life story. So I have a quote here that sums up what happened to him. Quote, On May 1st, his abandoned automobile was found on a Missouri River bridge with books of the Pendergast companies he had agreed to furnish the grand jury, together with two suicide notes. Days later, his body washed up downriver. So obviously, he agreed to work with investigators. He wasn't just, oh, I don't know anything, right? Um, And one of my sources, Hartman, indicated that the suicide might have actually been a murder cover-up. But if that's the case, like, they would have torched the, the car and the documents, right? So I don't think it was a cover-up. I think it was probably a suicide. Why? Don't know. Um, but what they found was that any stock Snyder held in these companies was actually name only, and Pendergast really owned the stocks and received the dividends. They also learned that, quote, of eight corporations in which he openly had larger controlling interest, he paid taxes on income from only three, Ready Mix Concrete Co., T.J. Pendergast Wholesale Liquor Co., and W.A. Ross Construction Co. So a grand jury indicted Tommy Boy on April 7th, 1939. Robert O'Malley, again, y'all just met him in the last episode. He was hired by Governor Park to be the superintendent of Missouri in 32. Well, Governor Stark, who replaced Park, fired him in 1937. 
and he was indicted alongside TJ. Quote, the indictments disclosed that Pendergast had evaded a tax of $185,000 and O'Malley a tax of $7,000. The arraignment was held on May 1st, 1939, and both men plead not guilty, of course. Um, but then Tom goes back to the judge, and he's like, okay, yeah, I did it. Judge Otis sentenced him to Leavenworth Penitentiary, which has a very long and rather fascinating history. That'll have to be its own episode someday. He sentenced him to Leavenworth for 15 months, and he had to pay a, a uh, $10,000 fine. And then he had to serve five years probation after he got out. Five days later, O'Malley comes in. He does the same thing. Yeah, I did it. And so Otis says, okay, you have to serve a year and a day. What a classic number, a year and a day, in Leavenworth, and then you have three years probation with a $5,000 fine. Both men entered Leavenworth on May 29th, 1939. Real quick, I want to change and take a look at our side characters that we've been talking about this whole time. I just want to remind everyone who's who, what they did, and where they ended up. So, Joseph Shannon was Pendergast's largest political rival in the city until 1924, in 1930, Tom helped him get elected to the House of Representatives, and he held that position until 1943, so that was 13 years. 13 is kind of weird. I thought they did it in two-year increments. Anyways, um, after he retired, he died. Um, he's buried in the Calvary Cemetery in KCMO. James A. Reed, this was the first time that um, Tom really use his political influence to get somebody elected. Um, he and his big brother, Big Jim, this is way back in 1900, um, they got Reed elected as mayor in 1900, and he served two terms. Um, but then once again, with the help of the machine, he got elected as a state senator in 1910, 1916, and 1922. He retired from politics after finishing his final term in 1928, and then he died in 1944. He's buried in the Mount Washington Cemetery in Independence, Missouri. I'm giving you their um, cemetery locations because it's just kind of interesting to see where everybody ended up. And I don't know. Maybe I'll do a series on cemeteries someday. We have some pretty cool ones around here. Um, Guy Park. So Pendergast helped him get elected in 32. And he's the one that was like, oh, you had this deal where you, you know, had this settlement, and okay, yeah, that sounds like a good thing. That was the fire insurance scam. Um, that was the last thing he did in office, because in 36, Pendergast was like, I'm going to support Lloyd Stark instead of you, Guy Park. Guy Park, my buddy, my friend, who's going to do everything I say. I'm going to support this other guy over you, and I don't know why, because as soon as Stark gets into office, he goes to Washington and he starts badmouthing TJ and discrediting him and trying to remove him from power. There was even an article published in Life magazine just after Tom was indicted. Um, it was about Stark. And the headline said, The governor of Missouri helps indict boss of Kansas City and becomes a presidential possibility. So, I mean, I, just, I really don't see why he's like, yeah, Stark, you're a good choice. Anyways, Guy returns to his law, law practice in Platt. Remember, he was a lawyer. Um, and he spends the rest of his life in Platt City. Uh, Harry Truman, judge in Jackson County, member of the machine. High-ranking member, actually. Um, personal friend of Boss Tom. Tom helped him get elected as senator in 1934. 
And he's still serving as senator while he's being investigated, while Pendergast is being investigated. According to Larson and Holston, he told a reporter from St. Louis Post-Dispatch that, quote, He has always been a friend to me when I needed it. I am not one to desert a ship when it starts to go down. End quote. But, like, he didn't do anything to help him when the investigation started? I think maybe it was a political thing, like, I'm a senator, I got my eye on being president, you know, I gotta keep my eye on the prize and not be associated with this guy kind of thing. I don't know. But he, it really seems like he's like, oh, yeah, that guy. Who? Who? Pendergast who? Right, right. You know what I'm saying? He just, he did nothing to help him. Anyways, um, we have Casimir Cass Welch. Longtime friend and business associate of Pendergast, Cass became the boss of Little Tammany in KC, even though he was um, a one-time supporter of Shannon. Um, he supported him and him, Pendergast, in 1924, which helped Tom solidify his power in the city. He died of a heart attack in 1936, and he's buried in the St. Mary's Cemetery in KCMO. We have uh, Henry McElroy. Man, this is really a lot of side characters, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hadn't realized how many other folks I talked about until I started doing this. Um, McElroy was chosen by TJ to be the city's first city manager in 1926. He resigned one week after Pendergast was indicted in 1939, at which time it was discovered that millions of dollars were missing from the city's budget. Gasp! He would never, but he did. So, a jury indicted him on June 29th for embezzlement and fraud. The IRS also began investigating him for tax evasion, and they found that from 1933 to 1936, he failed to pay taxes on a total of $274,263.15, and he embezzled millions of dollars from the city. So, a subpoena was issued on September 14th, 1939, but his health was really poor, and he actually died of a heart attack the next day on September 15th. He was buried in Mount Washington Cemetery in Independence. Otto Higgins, um, McElroy hired him to be the director of police. Remember, the director is a civilian administrator, not an actual cop. Uh, in this case, his job was essentially to make sure that vice crimes remained unpunished um, so long as Pentecost was receiving a cut of the proceeds. If someone refused to pay their <coughs> excuse, <coughs> protection money, excuse me, operation fee, operation fee quotations, uh, to boss Tom, then they got raided by the cops. He resigned on April 29th, 1939. It's actually the same time as O'Malley and Elroy. They all resigned about the same time. Um, possibly even the same day. I guess in an attempt to cover his ass, he filed an amended returns for 1934, or 36, 37, and 38 on May 1st in 1939. Uh, but the IRS still decides to investigate him, and they find so much. They found that he spent four times his annual income, that five of the men on the city's payroll as policemen actually worked on his personal property doing... Um, refurbishing, lawn care, um, fixing stuff, you know, stuff like that. Um, and that he embezzled money from companies owned by Pendercast. Now, this is ballsy. So, embezzling from the city budget is one thing, but directly from the boss, that's another. And Tom is already in Leavenworth when he 
when um, this is discovered, but he hears about it and he gets pissed that Higgins essentially stole directly from him. Um, they find that, quote, the investigation disclosed that during the five years, 34 to 38 inclusive, Higgins had a gross income of $109,000, uh, let me try that again, $109,000, $1,627.75, of which his salary as director of police for a total of $25,133.28 was exempt from federal taxation. The balance of $84,494.47 represented payments received from Corello and Snyder, interest and rental income, and tribute from prostitutes and saloon keepers. Of this sum, he reported only $24,431.57 and evaded income taxes on an amount of $5,970.12. Sorry, I wrote that weird. Uh, end quote. And that's a lot of numbers for y'all. I'm sorry. Um, the jury indicted him on October 26, 1939, for four counts of tax evasion, two of which he pled guilty to on November 3rd. He was sentenced to two years in Leavenworth with five years probation. And I don't have any information on him what happened after that. He died in June 1965, and he's buried in the Mount Calvary Cemetery in KCMO. Alright, one more here. Matthew S. Murray, he's a new side character. He was supposed to appear in an early episode, but I just ran out of time to introduce y'all, so I'll do that real quick. Murray was born in Dayton, Ohio. Hartman called him a civil engineer, which I take to mean he studied civil engineering in college and earned an engineering degree. He's another longtime member of the machine. He was appointed as the Director of Works Projects Administration in 1935. Remember, the WPA is one of the New Deal programs that FDR came out with. Before this appointment, Murray had been a State Highway Commissioner and a Director of Works Projects in KC, so he has experience. This is good. Um, McElroy had actually hired him to be the city's Director of Works Projects in 26. As Director of the WPA in Missouri... Murray was able to award construction jobs, and re again, remember, Pendergast built his fortune largely through construction and labor, um, so he's able to award these jobs to fellow members of the machine. That was something he was already doing in Kansas City, now he's just doing it on a larger scale in the whole state. According to Hartman, this was approximately 60 to 80,000 jobs. Um, he also notes that, quote, some figures go over 100000 Apparently, in order for the machine to really maximize its profits, Murray continued to serve as director of works in KC while simultaneously serving for the whole state. That is, until he was forced to resign as director of the state in 1939. Um, his position as director of works for the city, like Higgins, was exempt from federal taxation, and like Higgins, his wealth and lifestyle exceeded his known salaries because he embezzled a lot of money from Pendergast-owned companies. I mean, how gussy do you have to be to go after this guy? I mean, it's almost as bad as embezzling from the mafia. Anyways, um, he was indicted for five counts of, you guessed it, our favorite crime, time tax evasion. For the years 34 to 38, um, he was indicted in April 1939. 
On March 18, 1940, Judge Reeves sentenced him to two years in Leavenworth, and he entered the pen two days after that. Unfortunately, again, I couldn't find anything else after him, or about him after this, uh, not even a death date. Native Kansas Cityans, especially if you're second or third generation, you'll have heard stories from your parents and grandparents about the KC Mafia. This is an aspect of the story that I have avoided thus far uh, for two reasons. One, I want to do a series just on the KC Mafia. And two, where it does intersect with Tom, I really wanted to put it all together in one episode rather than spreading it out as I have been. Um, But I realized too late that if I wanted to go into detail on the Mafia in another series, that I could have and probably should have just mentioned it in the other episodes. Basically, all y'all need to know is listen to the Prohibition episode. It basically tells you vice, drinking, gambling, prostitution are readily available during Tom's reign. And these are crucial elements of mob power. Basically, Tom is not a member of organized crime, but he works closely with them. That's all you need to know for now. So, to me, it really sounds like anyone who could have helped Tom was either dead or had gone on to play a larger role in national politics and then just noped out of it like, oh, Pendergast too? New phone, who this? I don't know. Don't know who you are. Sorry, bye. Back to Tommy Boy. He had serious health issues. Um, I mentioned a heart attack in the last episode during the fire insurance scam. If not, I meant to. Pretty sure that I did mention it, though. In episode two, I know I mentioned that he had syphilis, which is, you know, really bad for your health. Let me try that again. So you're like, oh yeah, you have syphilis. Oh, you can treat it. It doesn't sound that bad. But it leads to a lot of other health complications, of which the health issues might have been, this this might have been their origin. If not, the, the syphilis exasperated the, the heart issues. Anyways, apparently he had another heart attack while in prison and was examined multiple times by several different doctors. And he tried to get early parole, citing his health as why he should be released. But his application was rejected in November of 1939. Still, he did get early release, and he was released May 30th, 1940. The machine, at this time, if you hadn't already guessed it, had already begun to fall apart. Um, Governor Stark continued his efforts to limit machine power on state and national levels. And then even after he was released, the, the damage has already been done. The machine never recovered. No one ever regained the power they had before the uh, the trial and everything. Reform efforts led by men either appointed from outside the city by the federal government or led by newly elected non-machine members within the city continued to expand over the next decade. And it sounds like there might have been some kind of power struggle within what remained of the Pendergast machine between Tom Jr. and TJ's nephew, James. Now, James was the official successor tom had been like i want you to follow me kind of like his brother jim would be like i want you to follow me um but he continued to suffer heart problems after his release and that led to his death he had a heart attack on january 23rd 1945 was taken to menorah hospital and died three days later tom is buried at the calvary cemetery in kcmo all right Epilogue. The legacy of Tom Pendergast. I promised to tell y'all more about his kids when I introduced them, so let's do that. Uh, First, his wife, of course. 
Sometime between Tom's release in 1940 and his death in 1945, she moved out of their house on Ward Parkway and into an apartment at Lacomo Apartments, which were also located along Ward. She got really sick and she died June 13, 1951. Um, their eldest, Marceline, married William E. Burnett and had two children, Marceline and Barbara Ann. She died in 1987. Tom Jr. married... Mary Louise Weyer, I don't, not entirely sure if I'm saying that right, it's W-E-Y-E-R, in 1935. She died in 1975, and sometime after that, he married Beverly Burris. None of my sources said anything about Junior having children from either marriage, so I'm going to go with he didn't have kids. He did own and operate the City Beverage Co. until 1965. Uh, I believe this is one of the companies that his father either owned outright or just held a lot of stock in. Um, but I don't know when Junior took it over. He died in February 1990. And after his death, his wife Beverly took over the running of a foundation that Junior had started called the Pendergast Weyer Foundation. He had started it after his first wife died and it... Um, provided financial support to small Catholic schools in the state. Finally, Tom's youngest daughter, Eileen, married Thomas Francis, and again, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this right, Houlihan, H-O-U-L-I-H-A-N. She died in June of 1951, just a week and a half, 10 days after her mom died. My source said that she had leukemia at the time, but honestly, it wasn't clear if that was the cause of her death. She and her husband had one child, a daughter. This is the end of the seemingly never-ending and yet still fascinating saga of Boss Tom, J. Pendergast, a man who rose from humble origins to become king of Kansas City. Sources. Alright, so once again, I used PendergastKC.org. It's a website by the Kansas City Public Library that details the Pendergast area. The site has maps, a timeline, biographies of major players, scholarly articles, and scans of original documents. The site is epic, guys. Y'all gotta check it out. There's gonna be a link on the website. There's also gonna be a second link to that timeline. Um, there will be a map of the wards and precincts during the Pendergast area um, on the website, and a map of businesses affiliated or owned by TJ on the website. Um, another online source was the Truman Prudential Li Presidential Library excuse me, um, website, uh, the Ohio History Central website. I used that um, when I was talking about the general history of the Great Depression. And the KansasCityHistory.org and FindAGrave.com got a lot of my um, like married and died and had such and such children information from FindAGrave. Um, I also got a little bit of a s information from the National Association of Governors website. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this at this last episode, but the Jackson County Democratic Club headquarters at 1908 Main Street is on the National Register of Historic Places. So I will link you to the um, register nomination for that. Every time a building is put on the register, first you have to fill out this um, paperwork first. It's it's fairly basic, you know, address, um, description, why it's important. But in the description where they talk about here's how it looks architecturally and all the architectural elements, 
And then in the why is it important, um, like the history segment, it gets really detailed in there. And uh, yeah, it's just great information if you want to check it out. I read a lot of books for this uh, series. Few of my jazz and prohibition episodes contained information on Pinterest, so I reviewed my notes for them. But I also read Pendergast by Larson and Holston, The Kansas City Investigation, Pendergast Downfall, 1938-1939 by Rudolf Hartman, Wide Open Town, Kansas City and the Pendergast Area, um, was written by several people but edited by Diane Mudy Burke, Jason Rowe, and John Herron. Um, I read The Mafia and the Machine by Frank Hayde and Open City, The True Story of the KC Crime Family, 1900 to 1950, by William Osley. I really liked Pendergast by Larson and Holson. Uh, super well researched and well cited, well organized. I think I use this more than any other source. It's clear and easy to follow. It covers his entire life, birth to death. Highly recommend it. Um, the KC investigation was actually written by one of the investigators, so Hartman really digs into the investigation itself. Um, lots of facts and figures. If you want more detail about the investigation and you're okay with, we found this single piece of evidence on this date, and here's what it detailed. It's a good book for you. <laughs> Wide Open Town, um, that's the one I said was written by multiple sources. It's very scholarly. So each chapter is written by a different historian, and it minutely examines some academic aspect related to Pendergast's tenure. I would not recommend this for a casual reader, but if you are a fellow historian, you should check it out. It's very interesting. Open City and the Mafia and the Machine. Both of these focused more on the Casey Mafia than Pendergast, but they were useful in helping understand the connection between Pendergast and organized crime. So I will return to those for the Mafia series. Um, they are easy to follow, and I would recommend them. So, um, I'll have photographs for you on the website. Um, the website is homegrownkc.wordpress.com. I'll have photographs there and on Instagram of Boss Tom, his house, the Jackson Democratic Club, um, Headstone, family members, other characters from the story, Reed, McElroy, Higgins, Truman, Casimir. I'll also have um, a few links to various articles that I discussed. Um, and that master's thesis about the politics and the influence of pandemic of 1918. I have one final episode for the series. I know you thought I was done. This next episode will be on Annie Chambers, so it's a part of the Paris of the Plains series, but it's not on Pendergast. Annie Chambers will be the subject. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed this particular podcast, please tell a friend, rate, and review me on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The more people who give me a good rating, the easier it is to find me. And frankly, it's just nice to know how I'm doing, what you guys think of the podcast. You can find me online. Um, again, my website is homegrownkc.wordpress.com. I'm all over social media as homegrownkc. If you have questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, whatever, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. I know financially it's money's tight right now, but if you want to support the show and you can do so, 
You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Here's how it works. You set up a, an, uh, let me try that again. You sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show, and then you'll be charged that day and then the first on every month afterwards. Um, everything that you um, that you give, it goes back into the show. Mostly it pays for my gas as I run around doing all this research. Um, if you become a supporter, you will also receive a shout out here on the show, so let me do that now. Thank you, Mike and Linda, for your support. If you cannot commit to a monthly donation and you just want to give a one-time donation, that feature is now available at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, who created my logo, to the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show, and last but not least, to local libraries, which enabled me to gather all my research. Thanks for listening. Seem to get you off my mind